Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMG Health Podcast. My name is Dr Bridget Scott and today's podcast will explore the future management of patients with esophageal cancer. Here we will be discussing key areas of unmet need in the management of patients with esophageal cancer, where emerging treatments may fit in the clinical picture for this disease, potential treatment targets and combination therapies, and the future treatment landscape. Joining me today are two great guests, Dr. David Ilson and Dr. Samuel Klempner. David Ilson is a medical oncologist on the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center's Gastrointestinal Oncology Service. He is an attending physician and member at Memorial Hospital and a professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Ilson is a member of the GI committees of the National Clinical Research Group's Alliance, CALGB, and NRG RTOG, and is co-chair of the NRG Upper GI Cancer Committee. He is also a member of the Upper GI Cancer Guidelines Committee of the NCCN and former chairman of the Intergroup Esophageal and Gastric Cancer Task Force Committee. Samuel Klempner is Associate Professor at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School and leads the Gastric and Esophageal Program. His clinical and translational research is centred on cancer genomics, acquired resistance to targeted therapies, and the intersection of genomics and immune-mediated therapies to identify novel therapeutic approaches and biomarkers in gastroesophageal cancers. Dr. Klempner serves on the NRG Non-Colorectal Committee, the NCI Esophago Gastric Task Force, and the NCCN Guideline Committees for Gastric and Esophageal Cancers. As a member of the Gastrointestinal Cancer Group at Massachusetts General Hospital, Dr. Klempner conducts clinical trials and translational research with new targeted agents and immune therapies and is active in gastroesophageal cancer advocacy and education. The publication of this podcast was funded by Novartis. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are not necessarily those of Novartis. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. David Ilson and Dr. Samuel Klempner. On to the first question. Esophageal squamous cell carcinoma is most common in East Asia and becoming less common in Western countries. Is this trend likely to continue? Also, as esophageal adenocarcinoma correlates with an increasing incidence of obesity, do you expect to see a rise in cases of adenocarcinoma? David, would you like to start us off? Yeah, so historically, uh, esophageal squamous cancer has been the most common uh, histology globally. And that uh, will likely to continue to be the case, uh, uh, even in high incidence areas in Asia, uh, there really is not a significant trend uh, to seeing a decrease in these cancers. And in high incidence countries like China, where smoking is very common, I don't suspect we're going to see any decrease in incidence in esophageal squamous cancers. Uh, in the West, uh, uh, largely, I think, due to reduction in smoking, we have seen declines in the incidence of esophageal squamous cancers. And uh, as you noted, a dramatic increase in adenocarcinomas of the esophagus and GE junction, which is probably related to Barrett's esophagus and reflux, uh, eradication of helicobacter. Uh, and if anything, that, that uh, increase in incidence has started to plateau. Uh, I wouldn't say that esophageal adenocarcinoma and G-junction cancers are continuing to really increase at the same rate in incidence. It's kind of plateaued. Uh, but uh, in the West, in many Western countries, uh, adenocarcinoma is now the predominant histology. But in Asia and Eastern countries, squamous cancer continues to be the dominant cause. And I don't see that trend uh, changing uh, anytime soon. Samuel? 
Yeah, I would agree. I think, um, you know, as, as uh, David mentioned, you know, this really comes back to the commonalities of the risk factors and whether the risk factors are themselves increasing, which ultimately leads to an increase in the number of cancer cases. And yeah, I think the risk factors for adenocarcinoma in the U.S. population are, are there, um, but may not be necessarily increasing to the degree they were before with obesity and associations with um, reflux into the esophagus of acid and chronic inflammation. And I think those, those things are there and, and perhaps the frequency has stabilized a little bit, but certainly in the U.S., um, adenocarcinoma is, is by far the predominant histology that we see. So it seems that the the situation is kind of stabilizing in the in the uh, with the adenocarcinoma. Yeah, we're not seeing the same rate of increase that we did in the uh, '90s and 2000s. It's really plateaued because uh, I think the risk factors that are present are are persisting, um, and of course there are there are likely other uh, contributing factors that we're likely not aware of, but certainly. Population trends like obesity and reflux, tobacco, and even some to a degree tobacco use uh, are contributing to incidence of esophageal adenocarcinoma. We are seeing an ongoing decline in more distal gastric cancers, maybe with the exception of younger patients, but a decline in the incidence of more distal gastric cancers because largely due to eradication of Helicobacter pylori. Thank you for setting the scene. So what are the key areas of unmet need in the management of patients with esophageal cancer? Presumably it will be, it will vary according to whether it's adenocarcinoma and ESCC and the risk factors and all that sort of thing. Could you explain about that, Samuel? Sure. I'll start off. Big question. So the unmet needs in esophageal cancer are unfortunately many. As you know, many of the patients uh, present with difficulty swallowing. And unfortunately, by the time that people find out about their disease, it's often locally advanced, if not metastatic. So there's a large unmet need for early detection and and early interception, because that's really where we can find patients that are curable. And in the U.S., there is no screening for esophageal cancers routinely outside of, you know, people with, with who are undergoing surveillance for Barrett's, for example. Um, so early detection, and then there's a, a lot of unmet needs in the management of non-metastatic patients. So how do we improve neoadjuvant therapies? There's been some advances in giving immunotherapy after surgery, but you know, improving outcomes and reducing the toxicity of our neoadjuvant and, and perioperative approaches. Um, and then, of course, further improving the outcomes, whether that be adding immunotherapy in the perioperative space or in the neoadjuvant space or both, um, I think is remains unmet needs. And what are your thoughts about unmet need, David? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, unfortunately, screening and early detection will, will likely never be cost effective because these are relatively rare diseases. And even in a high incidence population, a higher incidence population, such as individuals with Barrett's esophagus, the incidence of cancer is quite low. So we really focus in those patients on trying to treat precancerous lesions and uh, ablating precancerous lesions or removing very early lesions. Uh, and uh, in the general population, at least at the current time, screening is not likely to be cost effective given the rarity of the cancer. And that's even more applicable to squamous cancers, which are even less common. Uh, you know, uh, we now have screening for lung cancer, which is tobacco related, but uh, the incidence of non-small cell lung cancer um, towers over 
uh, esophageal squamous cancer in terms of incidence. So we, there, there currently is, aren't good uh, cost-effective uh, screening strategies. In terms of UTMEN needs, I think Sam outlined them very well, uh, trying to refine and improve and uh, get better tolerance of perioperative therapies. We have an ongoing debate about the role of radiation and uh, adenocarcinoma in the esophagus. Uh, should that be given? Uh, there are ongoing randomized trials. Uh, and uh, certainly moving immunotherapy and targeted therapies into earlier uh, use is a, a big research strategy. We've made modest progress in moving these drugs uh, into advanced disease setting and the adjuvant setting. Uh, obviously, biomarker testing, trying to identify patients that are going to most benefit from these new therapies uh, remains a big unmet need. Uh, but we've made progress. And uh, uh, as I said, it's, uh, as Sam appropriately said, it's an exciting time to be doing clinical research in this field, as we have clearly uh, made some uh, advances in the last few years. So even though there is no real opening to have a screening program, the progress in treatment and management of patients who have got these cancers is progressing at a great speed by the sound of it. Yeah, I think ne ne never fast enough, but certainly progressing. <laughs> yeah, there is clearly ongoing progress. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've had a number of new drug approvals, which have really uh, helped move the for field forward and uh, improve the care of patients. Now, focusing on the treatment, are the licensed PD-1 inhibitors nivolumab and pembrolizumab likely to take up a bigger space in the management of esophageal cancer in the future? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, we now have first line approval for these drugs. Both nivolumab and pembrolizumab are now approved in the first-line treatment of esophagogastric adenocarcinomas. We have approval for pembrolizumab in squamous cancers. We're likely to get approval for nivolumab in squamous cancers combined with chemotherapy. Then for pembrolizumab, we have approval of the agent in esophageal adenocarcinomas, squamous cancers, and HER2-positive esophagogastric cancers to combine with first-line chemotherapy. So both nivolumab and pembrolizumab are now part of first-line chemotherapy uh, in the treating, uh, treatment of uh, metastatic disease, and uh, adjuvant nivolumab in esophageal cancer after chemoradiation and surgery in patients who have residual disease is now the standard of care for adjuvant treatment given the improved outcomes. So, so these agents are now approved in first-line as well as in adjuvant treatment. Uh, there's an ongoing debate about who benefits. Probably the greatest benefits in these uh, agents are in patients with higher pdl one scores that are higher than 5 or 10% uh, based on CPS measures. But uh, there is regulatory approval for these drugs regardless of pdl one score in these settings. And that really is an area of ongoing debate uh, who will get the most benefit. But uh, these drugs are now front and center uh, in first-line treatment of metastatic disease and now in the adjuvant setting. Samuel? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, maybe a little more relevant to the lower esophagus and stomach where, you know, we're waiting on some big trials to come out with may further expand the, the use of these agents um, to, to that population a little bit lower down in the tube in uh, the perioperative setting. So I think, yes, I expect the neoadjuvant use uh, may may increase if, those, if that trial is positive. There's a lot of... Um, interest, as David mentioned, in some of the patients um, who don't have resectable disease, particularly in the squamous population, you know, tumors that are, are there but can't be surgically removed, uh, maximizing the therapy to that population, whether it involves moving immunotherapy 
into the neoadjuvant setting with concurrent chemoradiation and then continuing it after without a surgery or continuing it after without a surgery. I mean, I think we probably will see some more use scenarios, assuming the data is positive you know, over the next few years. So it seems like there is considerable research interest in expanding the use of these drugs in different settings and different patients according to need. Yeah, if we can validate uh, similar findings in the uh, adjuvant or perioperative management of gastric and G-junction adenocarcinomas, do we get the same benefit in gastric cancer for adjuvant checkpoint inhibitors? There's several ongoing trials that are addressing this. Um, and whether adding a checkpoint inhibitor benefits patients that in this, with esophagus cancer that get definitive chemotherapy and radiation without surgery, we await the results of ongoing uh, trials. And uh, those are areas where usage may be expanded if we see benefits, but uh, we obviously have to wait for the results of, of uh, control trials before we make that step. Okay, thinking about other PD-1 inhibitors, um, trials for other PD-1 inhibitors have demonstrated similar results to the licensed PD-1 inhibitors. Where do you think agents such as tizolizumab, camrolizumab, toripalumab, and cintilimab will fit in the clinical picture for esophageal cancer in the coming years? Samuel? Yeah, it's um, a lot of people asking this question. From a therapeutic standpoint, the efficacy seems uh, reproducible across the agents. So Pembro and Nevo and Cintilimab and Toripalumab and Camrolizumab, you know, have all shown improvements in large, well-conducted trials um, at, in varying parts of the world. And so I think um, the toxicity profile and the efficacy seems to be relatively reproducible. Uh, and so clinically, I think many of us would be comfortable using those agents if they were available, uh, but they are not based largely on where the trial was done. Uh, so some agents will be available in Asia, not in the U.S. and, and vice versa. So I think my, my, my thinking is that, yes, they are therapeutically appearing equivalent, um, but what, how, what their pathway to get approval in the U.S. Uh, for some of the agents remains a little bit unknown. Maybe it will be through novel combinations and, and ongoing studies that will differentiate slightly from the existing agents. And then, of course, uh, we don't talk about it as much, but the you know, cost-effectiveness analyses and whether the pricing uh, would ultimately drive the practice patterns is certainly a relevant factor. David? Yeah, I think it's reassuring that we're seeing the same positive signal uh, across these different agents and pretty consistent positive results for squamous cancers of the esophagus, as well as adenocarcinomas of the G junction and stomach uh, and esophagus. So it seems that there's consistent uh, benefit for uh, nearly all of these agents uh, combined with first-line chemotherapy, whether it's a fluorinated pyrimidine platinum or taxane platinum, which is a, a more popular regimen in Asia for squamous cancers. And I think it's very encouraging. Uh, certainly, uh, tesalizumab, we now have positive results in the, the first-line gastric cancer setting. I think we're still awaiting results for tesalizumab in uh, first-line esophageal cancer, but we had a positive trial of tesalizumab in second-line treatment in squamous cancers of the esophagus versus chemotherapy. So we already know that that agent uh, is beneficial, probably better than chemotherapy in second-line in esophageal squamous and positive results adding it to first-line chemotherapy and gastric cancer. Similar positive results for camrolizumab combined with first-line chemotherapy and esophageal squamous cancer better than chemotherapy alone. Turapalumab, um, uh, also positive results for 
chemotherapy plus toripalumab uh, versus chemotherapy alone in esophageal squamous cancers. And then citalopram, positive trials for gastric cancer and esophageal squamous cancer, combining these drugs with chemotherapy. So I, I think the, the signal is consistent for uh, these checkpoint inhibitors that adding them to chemotherapy across the board improves outcome compared to chemotherapy alone. And uh, it may uh, provide a more competitive market uh, for these agents. I think it's going to really depend on what the approval status is uh, uh, for you know, country by country and whether uh, there are preferred use of some of these agents in Asia as opposed to the West. And I think Sam made a good point. Uh, you know, we really have seen this similar benefit across the board. So really the next step is uh, novel combination strategies, adding other new agents. I know we're going to talk about some of the other targets that are being looked at, uh, combination strategies with PD-1 inhibitors with or without chemotherapy to uh, take it to the next level. So this reproducible effect sort of across the class is incredibly positive and um, giving eventually, hopefully, clinicians more options for their patients. And it's interesting that you describe the way to get these drugs perhaps approved in different countries it might be just straight into combination therapy or uh, using them in a different way. It's all very positive for the patient. If the clinician has more choice, the patient has more treatment options. Yeah, the more, more tools we have, we're always happy with that. Okay, looking at the uh, safety profiles, um, adding PD-1 inhibitors to chemotherapy in the first-line setting may lead to an incremental increase in toxicity. How can clinicians and patients best be educated on how to manage the toxicity of the PD-1 inhibitor plus chemotherapy combination? The chemotherapy effects generally are not really uh, altered with the checkpoint inhibitors uh, for the most part. Uh, they really are non-overlapping toxicities. Uh, and we're really most concerned about that sort of 5% incidence of more severe autoimmune effects that we need to monitor patients for carefully. You know, uh, there's little uh, concern about side effects like hypothyroidism, where we can easily supplement patients with thyroid supplements. But then when we get into more organ-specific toxicities, you know, bowel inflammation from colitis, uh, uh, kidney inflammation from nephritis, then the rarer complications of lung inflammation, pneumonitis, and cardiac inflammation, those are much rarer. But we certainly you know, do monitoring with blood work and liver function testing, making sure there's no autoimmune hepatitis. Many of us have really become uh, skilled in, monit in monitoring and managing these side effects. Patients need to be educated about what to watch for uh, in terms of bowel habit or skin rashes or changes in um, uh, any dyspnea or shortness of breath. And uh, patients have to be seen regularly and uh, assessed in clinic in person, have blood work monitored. We typically don't do, you know, specific cardiac monitoring in patients. I mean, some of these uh, toxicities are quite rare, uh, and some can uh, allow us to continue therapy. Uh, thyroid toxicities usually are easily manageable. Very low-grade skin uh, rashes can be managed with uh, topical steroids or low-dose corticosteroids. Uh, when we get into the need for more higher doses of steroids or you know, patients have more severe grade four toxicities where they re really require IV steroids and monitoring, the, the, you know, the, then we get into the situation where the, obviously the treatment has to be stopped. Um, but uh, we've all become better versed uh, in managing these toxicities. And I personally have a low threshold to refer patients to my subspecialists, my dermatologists, my nephrologists, my pulmonologists, gastroenterologists to help us manage these uh, toxicities. But fortunately, we do see them in uh, probably less than, you know, around 5% of patients. 
uh, so that uh, most patients will be able to be treated uh, without uh, incurring these uh, toxicities. Samuel, anything to add? Yeah, no, I think I think David hit all the key points. I, I think um, you know, like anything in in medicine, um, it there's a little bit of a learning curve uh, to experience, but you know. The majority of clinicians, whether they're focused in gastroesophageal or not and seeing every tumor type, um, at this point now have pretty solid experience with checkpoint inhibitors given the sort of broad approvals across cancers. I think many of us are pretty familiar with the toxicity profile, whether they be alone or in combination with chemotherapy, which is you know approved for other tumor types as well. And there does not appear to be synergistic toxicity, as, as David said. And then I think the other key point is, you know, having a low threshold um, to have a team, uh, build a team with other subspecialists, large institutions like where David and I are from have, you know, entire services that are dedicated to management of when these are more severe immune related adverse events. And we've learned a lot about, you know, both the pathophysiology of them, but also some of the treatment of the more severe events. But I, I agree with David. I think most of us have experience, and as long as you're monitoring the patient and listening to the patient, what they say, uh, then you know it's it's relatively easy and and not a lot of additional toxicity to take these patients through chemotherapy plus immunotherapy. So it sounds like quite a positive picture. The the uh, percentage of patients having this toxicity is, is quite low. The clinicians are familiar with the with the signs of the toxicity. And there's the referral system to um, get the patient the help they need in terms of specific side effects. So educating the patient is the, the last piece of the puzzle, really, isn't it? So if the patient is aware what they're looking for, that completes the picture. And it's a, a very positive uh, management program for the, for the patient. Yeah, I think it is a learning curve, um, and uh, this, this is also fuels the debate about who, is, you know, who gets the most benefit of these drugs. Um, and I think this is an ongoing point of discussion. It's likely that the patients that have the higher PDL1 scores are the ones with the greatest benefit. And we always have to make these risk benefit uh, calculations when we decide how to treat patients. David, you've already mentioned about uh, other targets in esophageal cancer. Um, the next question is covering that in a bit more detail. There is considerable interest in the second generation immune checkpoint inhibitors with targets including TIGIT, TIM3 and LAG3. Which of these targets is likely to be most important in the treatment of esophageal cancer and why? Yeah, it's probably too early to say at this point. Uh, uh, certainly TIGIT, uh, we have some, fa- you know, we know it's feasible to add a TIGIT drug to checkpoint inhibitors and potentially chemotherapy. And there are now ongoing ra- uh, randomized trials. I think that's always a leap of faith uh, when the company takes this to a randomized trial based on preliminary data. But that's how you address whether or not these agents add benefits. So certainly uh, TIGIT is being looked at in uh, combination strategies, both in locally advanced and metastatic esophageal cancer. And we'll uh, see what the trials show, whether there's any additive benefit. I know LAG3 uh, uh, historically has been a little bit disappointing uh, as a target, uh, but perhaps some of the newer generation bispecific antibodies that target LAG3 and PDL1 on the same molecule may have uh, potentially more, more promise. I know there's a, uh, some encouraging data coming out from non-small cell lung cancer. So I think LAG3 potentially maybe with the bispecific antibodies may uh, be a more viable target. 
And uh, again, uh, you know, we, we, we never like to get uh, too excited about early phase two data or even limited randomized phase two data. That provides a signal that uh, will move the drugs forward. And we always want to make sure, you know, the last thing we want to do is we're, we're, we're hoping we're past the era of, you know, seven, 800 patient randomized trials. You know, we really want to have a biomarker to identify and select patients that have the greatest benefit. So we also avoid the potential risk of uh, having a negative trial when if it turns out that there's a biomarker for a drug, we might be mis- missing a positive signal. Samuel, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this, again, comes back to uh, better understanding of the biology and, and better targeting of the targets. And so, you know, we, we actually don't even know that much about TIM3 and TIGID and LAG3 expression in esophageal cancer and what happens to it after, say, Folfox and nivolumab or whether combining. My, my own suspicion is that, um, as David hinted at, the tumors that are already sort of, let's call them more inflamed and, and pdl one expression is high, um, it may be difficult to show a benefit of adding TIGID on top of PD-1 when the patients are getting a lot of benefit from PD-1. Um, but the, lar- the proportion of patients who are perhaps lower pdl one expression that might need something to sort of push their, their tumor or their immune response over the edge, um, those are the patients that I'm really quite interested to see if the addition of TIGID and, and TIM3 or LAG3 antibodies um, on top of, say, PD-1 antibodies can, can improve the outcomes in those populations. And really, it gets back to what David just said about the biomarker selection. So there's a lot of interest in understanding the biomarker overlap between these patient populations. Does a PDL1 very high tumor also have a high TIGIT? We, you know, these are kind of questions that will help inform understanding like who, who actually might benefit from this and who maybe we're giving without really providing additional benefit. I think they're all legitimate targets and they're worth uh, exploration, which um, is ongoing. And I think it, Right now, I don't have a, say, a clear winner in my mind, um, and we just need to really do the studies and then really not only do the studies, but really take a deep dive and understand the patients that went on the trial um, to really see if there's populations that are going to be the ones that, you know, we need to focus on. So the impression I'm getting is it's it's pretty early days in terms of these uh, targets, but research interest is there the trials are being run you're gaining new information all the time so perhaps in the next few years we'll make some significant progress in this area yeah yes if we get positive trial results we'll have to we'll have to see we always worry you know when we start adding other drugs into the mix that we amplify toxicities and we amplify the expense of treatment so we we really have to define really what is also an incremental benefit uh, as well some ongoing trials of um, uh, the multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors plus uh, checkpoint inhibitors. Some very interesting preliminary data from phase two trials uh, that are now being explored in phase three. So uh, there's interest in combining drugs like uh, regorafenib and lenvatinib with checkpoint inhibitors with or without chemotherapy. So I just wanted to mention um, the ongoing interest, and that's actually even being pursued in larger randomized trials. We've already uh, discussed combination therapies up to a point in this podcast, but a further question for you. Which combination therapies are currently of research interest in esophageal cancer, and which combinations do you see having an impact in this field in the future? 
Yeah, so, so I think there are a number of other combinations that have moved forward. Certainly checkpoint inhibitors plus these multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors that may target uh, angiogenesis pathways, some uh, rather promising uh, early phase two data. Uh, so there's, uh, and we already have validation of this approach in uh, cancers like renal cell cancer and endometrial cancer, where they're actually approved treatments for uh, checkpoint inhibitors plus uh, multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors like lenvatinib. So, so that strategy, I think, also I think is going to uh, be of interest to explore. Uh, there's uh, actually an ongoing randomized trial now of pembrolizumab, lenvatinib, and chemotherapy. So I think this is an interesting strategy. Uh, the other issue is single agent versus combination immunotherapy. That's probably more relevant in the MSI high uh, cancers. Uh, MSI high cancers are exquisitely responsive to checkpoint inhibitors. And uh, uh, the debate is actually even still ongoing in colon cancer, whether it's better to use single agent versus combination. But I think that uh, uh, is an issue that will uh, be explored, hopefully, in that, not only in the advanced disease setting, but potentially in the adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting. Very provocative data from a French study that looked at combination ipilimumab, nivolumab, and locally advanced esophagogastric cancer, where they had very high rates of pathologic complete response uh, with no chemotherapy and no radiation given as preoperative treatment. So. So I think combination immunotherapies, adding other uh, multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors. I'm sure Sam can amplify on this, but uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of other interest in alternative combinations and focusing on uh, subsets of populations, including the, the MSI high patients. Yeah, I, I do agree. I think um, I'm not going to repeat what David said because I agree with everything, uh, but I will add that you know, there's other some other categories of targets that I think are interesting. Some of the cell surface proteins that may be more restricted to tumor cells, things like Claudin 18.2, we know is an active uh, target. And some of the combination therapies involving biospecific antibodies and CAR-Ts and combinations with IO, I think will help expand, you know, maybe the reach of that target. We'll see other earlier targets like Trope 2, you know, some of the antibody drug conjugate targets are interesting. And then there's a lot of interest and effort in, in sort of leveraging the idea that you can combine an antibody drug conjugate with immunotherapy potentially because the, the drug conjugate may, you know, induce some more immunogenic or immune promoting cell death. And then you can complement that with a checkpoint inhibitor, for example. Um, the strategy, you know, with HER2 has sort of perhaps the earliest and farthest along in that space. And then there's a whole other world of, of cellular therapies, which is really quite early on, but may eventually offer an, another approach to patients um, who have, whether it's restricted to certain profiles and certain antigens or whether it can be more expanded. People always are asking about, you know, vaccine-based approaches. And these are, again, very, very early and and maybe a little bit difficult in upper GI cancers like esophageal, but maybe targeted populations like HER2, there could be some consideration. So I agree that the IO combination and the TKI combinations that David mentioned are, are perhaps the most mature and, and have good rationale, um, but there are certainly other earlier targets across the spectrum uh, that, you know, that are undergoing ongoing studies. Have I understood correctly that 
perhaps some of these IOTKI combinations or the other combinations you've mentioned could lead to patients not requiring chemotherapy or radiotherapy as part of their treatment um, before surgery or after surgery? I think in the MSI high patients, yes. Uh, I think in uh, other patients, probably not because the, the responses aren't sufficient. But for MSI high cancers, um, uh, checkpoint inhibitors achieve very high rates of complete re remission. Uh, and um, of course, the other competing issue with these patients is they even do very well with surgery alone. <laughs> so should they get surgery alone without other treatments? Uh, so it's actually a very provocative discussion, uh, how to treat the MSI high patients. Uh, we're seeing emerging data in rectal cancer that patients are getting treated with checkpoint inhibitors without surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation. That's a particularly desirable outcome in rectal cancer if you can avoid a permanent colostomy. Uh, in esophagogastric cancer, sometimes the surgeries are quite morbid, and we do know that these patients probably do better with surgical management alone without chemotherapy or radiation potentially. But given the high response to checkpoint inhibitors and the morbidity and complications of surgery, some patients might be uh, attracted to the possibility of getting immunotherapy as primary treatment, even of locally advanced disease, and avoiding uh, the morbidity and complications of surgery. So this is an evolving uh, area. It's very exciting and very interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. We are hesitant to use chemotherapy in the MSI high non-metastatic patients. And I'm sure that David would agree with me here on the um, this, it is an important teaching point in the metastatic population outside the MSI high that it, you know, most of our patients do need chemotherapy. Um, and especially in the first line setting, it's, there have been some attempts in some very selected targeted populations like HER2 positive and pdl one positive, where maybe there's some signals without chemo, but most of the patients do still need chemotherapy based on where, where we are right now. Maybe the future that will change, but. David, you mentioned about trying to prevent surgery or circumvent surgery in patients. What are the barriers to moving towards an organ sparing approach, i.e. avoiding esophagectomy, which is a life-changing surgery, and how can these barriers be addressed? Yeah, I think, again, I think right now that discussion really is limited to the MSI high adenocarcinomas. Uh, and the problem is really identifying who is a clinical complete remission. So, uh, you know, our, our assessments are not always accurate. You know, a normal endoscopy doesn't mean there's no cancer. Improvement in a scan, whether it's a CAT scan or PET scan, doesn't mean that, they're, uh, that um, you know, the, the cancer has gone into a, a real pathologic complete remission. One area of interest, and I think Sam can probably comment on this, is, uh, you know, there's increasing use of a biomarker like circulating tumor DNA to assess, uh, you know, if the the dynamics of circulating tumor DNA decline is uh, dramatic. That's certainly consistent with a good response. Uh, if we don't see that decline, it's or we see, you know, persistence or increase. It's uh, not every patient that's MSI high responds to checkpoint inhibitors, and some patients progress on these drugs outright. I think uh, having better biomarkers of response, circulating tumor DNA probably still remains a research approach in the context of carefully designed clinical trials where we're looking at different biomarkers and endpoints, monitoring patients carefully. Uh, certainly in uh, the rectal cancer space at our institution, we had very exciting data for just giving uh, uh, the drug uh, dristalumab uh, to uh, rectal cancer patients without chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery, and we had a very high rate of clinical complete response. 
And in the first cohort of patients, uh, we were able to avoid surgery. Uh, of course, that requires more long-term follow-up. Uh, how do we establish that patients really are in complete remission? What uh, markers can we do to better uh, substantiate that? But uh, this is an area of ongoing debate and I think should uh, move into the realm of a research question. But again, that would really be limited to the MSI high cancers because the uh, benefits of checkpoint inhibitors and uh, uh, microsatellite stable tumors, it's, it's real, but it's more, much more modest. And uh, even though some of these subset of these patients do get very durable uh, disease control uh, and arguable long-term uh, clinical remissions, but it's a very small subset. Samuel? Yeah, I think I think David kind of hit it on the head. Um, and the, uh, in the largest barrier to moving towards an organ sparing approach is, you know, we just don't have sensitive and specific enough tests to tell who was really eradicated by whatever they did before surgery would be planned, whether it's neoadjuvant chemo or chemo radiation or a combination of induction chemo followed by chemo radiation or whatever they did with checkpoint without. We just are, are mainly limited by the ability to tell who's going to do well without a surgery. I think uh, we see the potential of some of the advances like circulating tumor DNA, which, you know, if it's validated, may be able to show patients who really were the vast majority, if not all, was eradicated by neoadjuvant approaches. And maybe that could be considered for a delayed surgery or a, you know, an uns a monitoring approach, but until we have data to validate the the tools and also some clinical evidence to say that you can get away with that, it's really hard to justify avoiding an operation in like an esophageal adenocarcinoma. Uh, squames, you know, the response rates are a little higher, so some some institutions have taken a little bit more of a surveillance approach, and people they feel have achieved a complete clinical response, as David mentioned. Um, but but even there, the you know the bulk of the data is still with surgery, uh, and I think the barrier just comes down to to patient selection and feeling really confident that your selection method is is really accurate, uh, because it's foregoing a surgery. The recurrence rates in people who don't have surgery, maybe they're medically unfit, um, their their progression free survival. It's significantly shorter. They're basically destined to recur um, in the majority of cases without a surgery for, for adenocarcinomas. Yeah, I think uh, uh, we talked a lot about MSI high cancers, but uh, less than 1% of esophageal cancers are MSI high. So, so that argument doesn't apply to those patients. Uh, squamous cancers, it's quite acceptable to give, you know, because the rates of uh, pathologic complete remission are much higher. Uh, uh, squamous cancers are more sensitive to chemotherapy and radiation. Uh, I would say a, a large number of institutions uh, support uh, non-operative management in squamous cancers of the esophagus. Uh, adenocarcinomas, it's more difficult because the rates of complete response are lower. Uh, we really would reserve uh, the non-operative approach for adenocarcinomas for really the medically unfit patients. But for squamous cancers, uh, um, I would differ a little bit with Sam there. I think probably the vast majority of institutions in the U.S. favor more of a non-operative approach and really using surgery more selectively in the squamous cancers. It sounds like um, surgery, surgical approach is extremely important. And until we get a better way of proving that someone's had a complete response and is in complete remission, it still has to remain an option. 
Adenocarcinomas, absolutely. I think squamous cancers, uh, a non-operative approach is acceptable practice and arguably prefer, pre- preferable given the mor- morbidity and mortality of esophagectomy. Okay. Um, throughout this podcast, I've really got the impression that there's so much variety in the presentation of the disease and the kind of treatment that each patient would require. Is more personalized medicine possible for patients with esophageal cancer and how could this be achieved? Yeah, I think possible always. I mean, Allah, we're, we, we all do this because we believe that we can make things better and um, Certainly, the, the promise of precision personalized medicine is is attractive and um, and potentially doable. Upper GI cancers have some unique features that have been a somewhat of a barrier to like traditional single agent targeted therapies. Primarily, this uh, idea and observation of very very high degrees of heterogeneity, you know, within the tumor. Uh, between metastatic sites in the same patient and, of course, between patients. So um, this has to do with the biology, the chromosomal instability that is very common in, in adenocarcinomas. Squamous cancers are, are biologically essentially a different disease. Uh, but in the adenocarcinoma world, um, we are getting better and better about understanding and identifying the tumors that may be truly addicted to a given pathway and may be able to truly individualize the approach a little bit more. But I think it's not, it's not the same disease as lung cancer or CML, where there's um, you know, these populations that are all addicted to the same target and you give the targeted therapy and the disease melts away. There are those rare patients in esophageal cancer, but the biology of the disease I think is going to require probably combination therapies more commonly than than monotherapies. Uh, And we will be able to individualize better as we understand a a given patient's mutations. And they're ideally, probably we will be looking more and more at the immune components as well. So institutions like ours and David's, you know, a new patient comes in, we're trying to understand as much as we can about the tumor. And that involves generally sequencing the, the DNA from the tumor and often the RNA, looking for you know, various targets, often involves cell-free DNA um, in the future, and, and more and more it will probably involve looking at expression of, of some surface targets as well, pdl one being the, the best example, but perhaps Claudin and FGFR2 in the future. Um, so I'd say yes, I do think that individualization based on biomarkers is definitely the way the field is moving but it will probably take a little bit longer and a little bit more creativity than, than the lung cancer model where you know one target, one drug kind of has panned out pretty well. I think that it's gonna be more combination oriented in, in esophagus and both squame and adeno, but mostly uh, in the adenocarcinoma world. David? Although we're really moving into the era of you know doing uh, you know broad genomic profiling on, uh, on our patients and their tumors, and now we have the availability of blood-based testing. Although we are identifying sometimes actionable targets, uh, still in the aggregate, a lot of this testing is often not very productive. You know, we, we don't really find targetable mutations. Uh, but just to stress uh, that uh, certainly all patients, certainly with newly diagnosed metastatic disease, there are certain biomarkers that we need to test routinely. And we always try and educate our pathologists uh, to do these tests when patients walk in the door uh, so for esophagogastric uh, adenocarcinoma, certainly HER2 testing, mismatch repair protein testing, and pdl one testing. 
because all of these initial tests are going to help inform treatment. Uh, HER2 positive patients get HER2 targeted therapy plus checkpoint inhibitors. Um, MSI high cancers would get checkpoint inhibitors. And then we can debate uh, that the higher PDL1 expressing uh, tumors uh, would get the better benefit from checkpoint inhibitors. And we discussed earlier some of the newer biomarkers. Uh, if some of the agents that are targeting these are validated, such as zolbituximab, which targets Claudin 18.2, very commonly overexpressed protein in gastric cancer. If that turns out to be a viable target, that'll be another routinely tested uh, marker to individualize treatment. And uh, very promising data for targeting the FGFR receptor. Uh, uh, both of these biomarkers tested with immunohistochemistry. We don't even have to do uh, the fancier uh, uh, genomic testing. So I think uh, uh, the take-home message, personalized medicine, is doing your biomarker testing early, particularly HER2, PDL1, mismatch repair proteins. Uh, certainly, if the Claudin story and the FGF story pan out, we may have yet two other biomarkers that we'll need to test routinely, Claudin 18.2 and FGFR receptor. And then uh, uh, next generation uh, genomic profiling, really looking for the rarer targets. Um, we certainly have emerging data now that uh, EGFR was thought not to be a viable target in esophagogastric cancer, but there's now emerging data that in the rare, rare patient that has EGFR gene amplification, uh, EGFR targeted agents, uh, monoclonal antibodies may be quite effective. Uh, and of course, the, the, the sort of needle in the haystack, the uh, NTREC uh, 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 gene uh, rearrangements infusions, uh, which are targeted uh, by specific drugs. So uh, we are entering the era of personalized medicine, uh, but uh, the, the progress has been small and incremental, and, uh, but we need to do, perform our biomarkers and do our testing and also validate some of these newer agents in well, you know, carefully designed clinical trials that really focus on the right population. So it sounds like the heterogeneity of esophageal cancer really is a complication in personalized medicine, but with all these initial tests and biomarker testing and the continued research in this area, is, it is a possibility, but not an immediate possibility. Yeah, I, just, I think it's a barrier, but not a barrier that can't be overcome. Uh, it just requires understanding the, the biomarker overlap. You know, maybe there's going to be a Claudin positive patient that's HER2 positive also, and then you're going to be in a situation where you're deciding between two therapies. And so we just, we just need the data, and it's definitely going to come back to understanding those biomarker populations. On to our final question. What does the future treatment landscape for esophageal cancer look like in terms of any expected approvals, treatment pipelines, and current future clinical studies? David? Uh, well, I think we mentioned some of the promising targets that are the subject of ongoing trials. So uh, certainly, uh, probably increased regulatory approval of some of these alternative checkpoint inhibitors that have achieved positive results in phase three trials. Uh, there is a potential for an immunotherapy combination approval in esophageal squamous cancer with the data for ipilimumab and nivolumab. That's probably the exception uh, that that uh, immunotherapy combination might move forward in squamous cancers of the esophagus. And then certainly looking at the next generation of uh, immune therapy targets, uh, looking at uh, better biomarkers to identify patients for uh, treatment selection, and the, some of the many targets that we talked about that are an ongoing investigation. So it's clear that the um, uh, immunotherapy, uh, once we 
realm, once we know, know how to exploit it properly, we, we see dramatic responses and improvements. And our hope is to really uh, get the, the patients that have limited uh, benefit from checkpoint inhibitors. Is there a way to augment responses of these drugs? Uh, because it seems that once we know how to activate the immune response, uh, it can be a quite an effective treatment uh, for patients, uh, not only in the advanced disease setting, but in the, in the preventive setting. So it's an exciting time, lots of targets, uh, but again, the need to validate uh, uh, new agents and, and well-conducted clinical trials. Samuel, your final thoughts? Yeah, I think um, my final thoughts is, is really a, it's fun to be an esophageal and gastric cancer oncologist now. We have a lot of stuff to investigate. Um, but to answer your question, the you know evidence is what drives the treatment landscape. And I think we look at the near-term phase three trials that are ongoing, and those are most likely to ultimately you know shift the landscape, whether it's perioperative, checkpoint inhibitor with chemo, whether it's Claudin 18.2, FGFR2, you know, these are these are targets that are later in development and probably have the most near-term potential impact if, if the data is positive. And then uh, longer term for, for some of the combinations. Uh, but I, you know, I think the broad buckets are still the same, immunotherapy um, as a paradigm to build upon targeted therapies, and you heard about EGFR and Claudin and FGFR2, and maybe we'll reinvigorate the MET amplification story someday. Uh, and then, you know, farther along the line are, are other buckets, you know, cellular therapies and et cetera, cytokines. Uh, I think the anti-angiogenesis angle that David mentioned is, is attractive and has some strong rationale. And we will see what, uh, what those trials uh, read out like. So, yeah. I think I think the the landscape is definitely going to continue to evolve over the next few years, and that's just because you know the data is going to be out there to allow us to have options. This all sounds very positive. Wonderful. Thank you to Dr. David Ilson and Dr. Samuel Klempner for such a great conversation exploring the future management of patients with esophageal cancer. Remember to visit our archives for plenty of great podcasts covering many health-related topics. For now, stay safe and stay well, and I hope to have you back again on the EMG Health Podcast very soon. Bye for now.